Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, comedian, filmmaker, psycho killer. Better. Run, 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 run away. Thanks. Oh, no, it's still going. Yeah, 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 yeah. Guitar. Wang, wang, wang. Go, go ahead. Thanks. Thanks for singing. I feel like I'm really back at a concert right now. <laughs> Why is Jason singing? Well, in this season of Qu'est-ce 1985. say? this uh, thing. In this season of Awesome Movie Year, this is what I'm trying to say. We are talking about the films of 1984, and we have arrived now at our documentary episode, and we are talking about the Talking Heads concert film, Stop Making Sense, directed by Jonathan Demme. This is kind of a, a different sort of pick for us. I, this is definitely a, not a narrative film, but I feel like people don't always think of concert films as documentaries, but that's certainly what this is. And uh, certainly it's an incredibly notable nonfiction film from 1984 and in the concert film genre, uh, and we'll talk more about this, but this is considered by many people to be the best concert film ever made. So. We decided to go with that for our documentary pick. Bit of a different uh, approach, but I think it should be fun. You know, I one of the things I like about the show Awesome Movie here, Josh, is if you look back, we've chosen many different types of documentaries over the seasons. And uh, you're right, concert film is not a straight music documentary or a chronicle of an album, but it is a subgenre of music documentaries. And this one is as influential as an or as important as any of them and uh yeah when we were looking over the documentary options this was the one that stood out for this year so you don't have to defend it buddy this is a good pick i know i think it is a good pick i'm just kind of explaining uh our thought process here and and i will say i mean this movie at the time that it was released was treated as a piece of cinema this is a movie i think you know, as time goes on, and we'll talk about this too, especially with more and more home video, there's tons of concert uh, documents, let's say, that are not usually considered to be movies by most people. But this is a film that premiered at the San Francisco International Film Festival. It got a full theatrical release. It was reviewed by film critics, um, and it was a success at the box office. It grossed $5.1 million dollars on its budget of $1.2 million. Um, it also did win, I thought this was interesting, it won an award for Best Nonfiction Film from the National Society of Film Critics. So at least one critics group uh, included it along with more kind of traditional documentaries. So nowadays, if we get, I mean, obviously theaters are closed uh, at the moment, but when theaters are open, if we get concert films in theaters, it's usually these kind of one-night event things and not a traditional release. But this one certainly was traditional. Right, right. You're talking about like almost like these live streams up to theaters or, you know, like um, direct from a theater, uh, a stage theater to the movie theater, so to speak. And uh, one of the other points you made, Josh, is this is uh, a piece of cinema. I think uh, part of the reason that some some of these are not considered that anymore or the way they're shot, you know, obviously everyone shoots on digital now, but 
this was shot on film and you know given the quote-unquote classic film treatment other than it was the first uh documentary to use all digital uh audio recording techniques Right. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why it was so successful and beloved is that you can really hear this concert very, very clearly. And the music is obviously extremely important to a movie like this. And, you know, the way that they were able to record that uh, in as much clarity and detail as a studio album, I think, does make a big difference. Josh, you have made such an important point there. The music is important to a concert film. For oh, those so of our mean I actually didn't make an important point, is what you're <laughs> who saying. Who are saying, like, <laughs> what's an important element of a concert film? The music. That's why, Josh, you've been employed as a film critic for so long. I am just saying that the clarity of the music is a reason that this movie <laughs> succeeded. You're and, right. Among you're the right. top you're three right. most important parts, I'd yeah. say. Well, yeah. and also, this is a movie where it doesn't have any other elements. And a lot of concert movies, especially sort of concert documentaries that we think of as more as pieces of cinema, include more than just the performance. They have uh, backstage elements, they have interviews, they have things like that. And this movie has none of that. So it really has to rely on the music. No, you're you're 100% right. I'm giving you crap, uh, but it, yes. you're, you're, you're right. And you know, another thing that you mentioned is um, a lot of the time, there will be like reshoots or, you know, pickup shoots on sound stages on a lot of these uh, concert films. And Jonathan Demme, the director, wanted to do that. Um, but David Byrne, the lead singer from The Talking Heads and the man who conceptualized this whole thing, uh, refused. So what you're seeing is what took place uh, December 1983, Four Nights, the Pantages Theater. This is this is that concert put together. Yes, yes. I mean, as you said, like obviously there were four nights, so there is some ability to choose among different tastes, sure. so to speak. But um, yes, this is this is as a documentary should be, is an actual document of real events that occurred without any fakery. Let's say, Josh, um, you're on fire today. Documentary. I know what I know what doc- yeah, Okay, thank you, thank you. I know what documentaries are and what music is. Let's hear from Roger Ebert. <laughs> Um, Roger Ebert said, the overwhelming impression throughout Stop Making Sense is of enormous energy, of life being lived at a joyous high. And it's not the frenetic, jangled nerves energy of a rock band that's wired. It's the high spirits and good health we associate with artists like Bruce Springsteen. There are a lot of reasons to see concert films, but the only ones that usually get mentioned are the music and the cinematography. This time, the actual physical impact of the film is just as exhilarating. Instead of the standard phony cutaways to the audience, Jonathan Demme keeps his cameras trained on the stage. And when David Byrne and company use the stage-level lights to create a shadow play behind them, the result is surprisingly more effective than you might imagine. It's a live show with elements of Metropolis. So Ebert obviously thought of this as, as a real piece of cinema, comparing it to you know, one of the greatest movies of all time. And of course, I wanted to make sure to get a reference to Bruce Springsteen. Thanks for that, Josh. Thank you. And I'll just follow up with two things. One, on that point, you know, I think Byrne and Springsteen are two guys who uh, carefully treated their instrument, their voice over the years, and that's why they're still having the success that they have and can still sing the way that they can. But two, Josh, I wanted you to chime in on 
the point that it has elements of Metropolis. What did you think of that? I, 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 don't, I don't know. I think that might be a little bit of a stretch. I do think this movie is cinematic and I kind of tried to notice that more this time than the first time that I watched it to think about how this is like constructed as a piece of cinema and not just as like, here's a concert, which is the way that we think of most concert documentaries or concert films now. Because obviously, uh, Roger Ebert was not alone among movie critics in seeing this as a great movie and not just a great concert performance. And so, uh, I again, I think maybe Metropolis is stretching it a bit, but I do think Jonathan Demme makes clear choices here from a cinematic perspective. Yeah, I agree with you. And some of those, um, I think, in a way, take away. But I can see why at this time they added so much to it. You know, you know, sometimes you want a little more space um, or one thing that I didn't really get in this film was the interplay between the musicians. And I wanted a little more of that. Yeah, I mean, I think he's he's shooting it in a certain way. And I mean, as far as that interplay goes, I don't know. I think there are moments of that. And but then I also wonder if there is just not as much interplay going on and that Demi isn't capturing it because it's not as much there. And I know the talking heads, at least related to David Byrne, you know, there was some kind of estrangement between the various members. Uh, Still is. Right. And so who knows what their personal kind of feelings were at the time. Um, but that's fair. I think maybe Demi shoots it in a way that he focuses on an individual uh, member at, at any given moment and not always on the the whole as they interact. Yeah, and uh, fair points. I mean, this, like we said, 83. So they were still together for years after this. So right. it wasn't like we were watching the unraveling of a band on stage. But yeah, the, uh, the counterpoint is, this is David Byrne's movie. This He is the star of this film. That he is. Pauline Kael in The New Yorker also was a big fan of this. She said, Stop Making Sense makes wonderful sense. A concert film by the New York new wave rock band Talking Heads was shot during three performances at the Hollywood Pantages Theater in December 1983, and the footage has been put together without interviews and with very few cutaways. The director, Jonathan Demme, offers us a continuous rock experience that keeps building, becoming ever more intense and euphoric. Many different choices could have been made in the shooting and the editing, and maybe some of them might have given the individual numbers, there are 16, more modulation. But in its own terms, Stop Making Sense is close to perfection. And um, that last line gets quoted a lot. Right. <laughs> Just uh, because even though she's she's using it actually in a context of being somewhat critical, but I, I saw that, you know, in a lot of just you know, pieces about this movie, they say, oh, and Pauline Kael says it's close to perfection. And she didn't even uh, apologize for liking it this time. No, no, she didn't. She seems to go with it, although one wonders how into new wave rock she was. Um, <laughs> and she's also wrong. Again, like you said earlier, Jason, I think this is four uh, performances, not three, that they shot for this film. I think so, too. But you know what? We're going to let it slide, Pauline. Merry Christmas. Yeah, you know, she didn't she didn't have the internet to research these things at the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, your Wikipedia was doing reporting. Yeah. <laughs> but again, these are two of these kind of like top film critics at the time and they really see this as this this major piece of cinema. So, I just I I found that notable. And they also, I mean, both of them talk about this kind of euphoric, joyful feeling that you get from this movie that 
I don't know. I mean, I could see that happening at the concert in person, but I, I mean, maybe it's just because I'm not a huge fan of this music, but I didn't uh, feel that. Well, Josh, I am a huge fan of this music and I didn't feel it either. And I really wanted to. So right. um, I think maybe uh, maybe it was time and place. I don't know. Uh, later in the show, we're going to have a guest, uh, Eric Gladstone, who was a music journalist uh, and author of an upcoming music book, uh, uh, Anything But Nirvana. And he was at these concerts, not at the Pantages, but on this tour. And maybe he can offer us some insight of what we were missing. Right. I think that is, I mean, in just in general, being obviously being present, here's another obvious observation for you that being present at the concert is different from watching it in a film. But but that's that said, we've watched other concert films that have emotionally connected to us better. I think we would both agree. I would not. Uh, I am not a fan of concert films in general. And I mean, I've I've watched other concert films by artists whose music I'm more a fan of and that maybe I you know, enjoyed that in the sense that I like listening to the songs more, I might know the words or something, but in general, concert films leave me cold. So, but, uh, we can get to that. Yeah. It's a later. different, it's a different type of genre. I will just quickly say we can get to it later, but I have watched other concert films where I've, uh, connected better. Yeah. And like I said, I'm a big fan of new wave seventies punk talking head stuff. So. Right. Right. And there is, I do want to get a, a more critical review in here from Paul uh, Atanasio in the Washington Post, who said, it's a pure performance movie, no interviews or documentary footage, a static composite of long shots and close-ups. Jonathan Demme brought more flair to the big band set pieces of Swing Shift. Visually, we've come to expect more from music. The claws of MTV have sunk into our cortex. So much so that even the lyricism of Martin Scorsese's The Last Waltz now seems flat and ordinary. And the Heads band is so large, nine members, that Demi's flitting from face to face gets awfully diffuse. As the band jollies around the stage, Stop Making Sense sometimes looks like home movies from a block party. So I think in a way he's getting to your complaint there that, that there's too many kind of close-ups or individual focus and you don't get a sense of the band as a whole. Yeah, I mean, at the same time, I think there are plenty of bands with multiple members, big, big bands that have it. And, you know, this idea that the last waltz doesn't hold up from a shooting standpoint is like, you're a dumb, dumb dummy. That's like, that's still to me a pristine document of uh, of how a concert film should should and could be shot. Yeah, I have not seen The Last Waltz, so I can't comment on that. But I think the idea here that there's nothing going on visually, again, I think is wrong. I think that Demi is making some clear choices and is is obviously thinking about this as a film. And, and to me, uh, parts of it felt like watching a music video, maybe not as flashy and as fast cut as some uh, 1980s music videos that you might see on MTV or, or music videos that you might see now, but it felt like there was definitely a construction going on there that had a music video quality. So I don't necessarily agree with him here, but I wanted to get that perspective. Yeah. Say, who, who said that again, Josh? Who was the? It's uh, Paul, Paul Atanasio or Atanasio in the Washington Post. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we know about these Washington Post guys, don't we, Gary Arnold? Um, <laughs> but uh, no, I, I do think, yeah, he made clear choices, but some of them, at least now in retrospect, um, yeah, don't don't hold up the way that maybe the intention was, or at least for me and you, um, they didn't. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think I think his choices visually, it's not that they don't hold up. I just feel like they don't necessarily add enough 
for me to feel like, wow, this is a great movie and not just an effective document of a particular performance. But I want to give him credit. And like I said, watching it this time, I was trying to kind of give him more credit or trying to notice that at least a little. Yeah, I guess what I'm saying is to me, the choices didn't necessarily enhance it, which is what are all all like these people are saying. Um, right. And, you know, um, uh, is it is it Christgau or Chris Gow? Robert Christgau? I think it's, I think it's Chris Gow. Yeah, yeah, I know he he loved this too. And I, I wanted to make sure to mainly quote movie critics to emphasize how this was thought of as a movie. But yeah, he, he was a big fan too. Right. And he was the senior editor for Village Voice while all the while the music scene was exploding at CBGB and everything. So he was there for the beginning of Talking Heads and uh, he he said this is, you know, the best concert film ever made. So um, I get it that you wanted uh, mostly film critics on it, but I wanted to at least mention that. Right. No, that's important. And I think that you can note there that it was the film critics and the music critics who agreed on the greatness of this movie. So, Jason, as a big Talking Heads fan, had you seen this before? No, I actually hadn't. Um, and I was excited because it's been on my list for so long to watch it, you know, um, and I've seen plenty obviously like music documentaries uh, is one of the things i gravitate towards too but i've seen you know a good number of concert pieces as well and yeah i don't know this one uh, man i wanted to like it more and josh i know you had seen it before yeah i had written a bunch of uh, a, a series of, of posts on my site about rock movies a few years ago and not just concert movies i think this was actually the only pure concert movie that i wrote about there in part because it's considered the greatest concert movie ever. And so I wanted to include it. And it definitely at that time left me kind of cold. And, and I felt the same way mostly this time. But like I said, I, I, I think I put in more of an effort this time to try to think about what is going on in this movie cinematically and what is it that makes people think it's so great. And I still didn't get on board with the greatness of this as a movie per se, but I think I maybe took note a little more of it as a film. But yeah, I mean, I'm also not over the moon about this. And and again, for me too, a lot of the songs don't really do much for me. I I like some of the Talking Heads songs that are more pop oriented, the, you know, kind of the catchy hits that they've had, but a lot of the other stuff doesn't really do much for me. So yeah, I think we're both uh, a little underwhelmed with this. And, but I do think it's interesting because we can't say it's because of you know, well, we're not fans of this type of music because clearly I am. And like you said, you're not. So there's got to be some type of intersection that we're that 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 is not translating for us. Yeah, I think so. And uh, and Dave, who is a musician, uh, Dave, had you seen this one? I had not. No. And uh, was your experience? Uh, did you connect with it a little more maybe than we did? I feel like I did. Uh, I I actually did really really enjoy it and i've never been the biggest talking heads fan i i you know like you josh i you know like some of the hits you know but you know never really got into them very much but uh i was very on board i got really uh taken in by it well there you go so josh if you're keeping score yes. you had seen it before but dave and i have only seen it once in a lifetime so far mm. oh, yeah. <laughs> thanks thanks for that on that note, we'll come back in a moment and give our general thoughts on Stop Making Sense. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year in this episode of our season on the films of 1984. We've been talking about our documentary pick, which is Jonathan Demme's concert film, Stop Making Sense. 
And coming up, we're gonna have a special guest who actually experienced these performances or a performance from this tour in person. But as people who did not experience that, I think, Jason, you and I didn't quite get the vibe that we would hope to get from this film. Yeah, and I I don't know, man. I don't know what it is. Uh, I watched American Utopia, which was uh, the David Byrne documentary put out about the touring broad, uh, show that went to Broadway that Spike Lee directed. And I found that like more riveting and I felt guilty about it. And I'm like, is it the way he shot it? Is it that Byrne... And the band are kind of seemingly more in lockstep because he's so energetic in Stop Making Sense. Like that's some of the most thrilling stuff, watching him bound around the stage and dance and just run laps. And um, construction wise, I totally get it. How like, you know, we're starting with him and we're adding another band member on each song and then we're building the stage as it goes. And it's like, but it just like. I just felt like at any point in time I could have left and come back and it would have been fine. Yeah, that's fair. I think he does. I mean, I think he's not the only one who has energy. I think they all do. And I mean, that's yes. something that's something in a in a concert in person that really makes a difference. If you can feel like the band members that the musicians are all really giving it giving it their all and they're really present, I think that that is important. And some of that is all, I mean, that's also important in the film, I think. I mean, you wouldn't want to watch a movie of them all kind of standing stoic and playing their instruments. It'd be kind of boring. But yeah, I I, I don't know. It just, that doesn't necessarily translate. I mean, you can see them, uh, you can see Burn especially, but I mean, all of them, I think you can see them sweating and you can see them really putting all that effort right, in. And, right. and And they're getting the energy back from the audience. Although one of the things this movie does is almost never show you the audience as one of those uh, reviews mentioned, which I thought was interesting. I feel like a lot of concert films are meant to give you the experience or attempt to give you the experience of, of as if you were there in the audience. And maybe it's as if you were in like the front row, because you want to be able to see the band members, but it's still that sort of like, let's recreate this experience for you because you are not able to actually be there in person. And this movie, I feel like what Demi does a lot of the time is, is, get rid of that perspective and make it feel like you're on stage with the musicians. And I think that goes in part to what you're talking about, about the uh, focus on a single band member at a time, a lot of the time. And it's like, now we're standing next to this person, or now we're standing next to this person. And I did think that was an interesting choice. Yeah. Um, it was an interesting choice, but yeah, you're right. Like, you know, we talked about how Byrne said he wouldn't go and do this on a soundstage. And uh, the reason was that he didn't think that they could recreate the energy of a live performance, which I totally get, you know. But, um, yeah, I, I mentioned The Last Waltz, and you mentioned The Last Waltz, which which to me is, like, maybe the best ever concert documentary. And there's a, uh, there's a shot in there. I love the way he shoots it, but, like, I want to relate it to this movie. There's a shot in there where uh, Garth Hudson is – he has like the saxophone solo and Robbie Robertson is in the like side and he's looking at him just in awe. And then Scorsese racks the camera to Robertson on a guitar solo. So you're really getting the interplay and the feeling that these musicians have for each other. And I didn't get any of that here. Like I said, um, I didn't get any of the interplay and I didn't get anything beyond that. Hey, we're in a band together, but you didn't get any warmth between the members. Yeah, that may be true. I mean, I think they're, they seem happy to be there. I mean, individually they're, they're having a good time. Right. I'm not saying that I'm saying, but I'm talking about the interplay between them. 
Right. Yeah, there isn't there isn't as much of that. I mean, there there's little moments where David Byrne goes over to the backup singers and they kind of share the microphone and they sing together and there's there's that. But you're right, they're all kind of like in their own little space doing their own little thing, even though it's clearly been rehearsed. I mean, there's the like little dance moments where on the one hand, the dance moves are not sophisticated in any way. I mean, it seems like David Byrne's main dance thing is to look like he's a a clumsy guy who's about to fall over. A wiggle worm or something, or the the blow up guy from the uh, car lot or whatever. Oh, there you go. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, But I mean, there's, there's clearly moments where they plan to do certain little moves together. And so there's, there's bits of interplay there. But yeah, and I don't know. I mean, as I mentioned, like these, this is a band who were known for having some interpersonal conflicts and who knows what was going on there. And also half the band is is kind of hired members who aren't a part of the core band. So, you know, whether they have the same connection with those people as they do with each other, we we really don't know. But but that's what you had literally, that was kind of what I picked up on on your last point. You're like, he went over to the background singers to interplay with them. He didn't go over to Tina Weymouth or Chris Franz or anybody right. or Jerry Harrison. So it's like he's he's almost like connected more to the the hired guns than the the band here. And that may be the case. It may be that, you know, David Byrne hired those people and he handpicked them, but he stuck with his band members. I mean, these are things that we don't know and we can't really know, but they may contribute to that feel. Um, but again, at the same time, I don't think, like you said, I don't think this is a movie where we're witnessing the band like falling apart on stage or I I've been to concerts in person where I remember going to see Aerosmith one time and you could just tell, I was like, none of these guys want to be here. Um, and that's not the case here. I don't think. Yeah. That's a different thing. And you know, Josh, we should say, um, both you and I have written about music, uh, probably for at least a decade or thereabouts, you know, um, you covered a lot of hard rock. Uh, I covered a lot of indie rock and new wave stuff like this, so mostly live concerts um, for the Las Vegas Weekly. So um, I think we both were watching it, or at least I was watching it from both a uh, cinematic and a uh, musical standpoint there. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I I hesitate to call myself a music critic sometimes because I don't have the broad palette that is necessary to really be a critic the same way that I feel like I I can with film. Um, But certainly I've written a lot of reviews of concerts and of albums. And I think as a concert performance, this is really good. I mean, I'm trying to talk about Jonathan Demme's choices cinematically, but there's also all of David Byrne's choices in terms of the staging. Um, You know, the way they bring one band member up at a time as the show begins, the way it's kind of the, st- the stage set is constructed while you're uh, watching the performance. All of that is deliberate choices that David Byrne has made. Uh, the lighting, you know, there's a song where he's dancing with a lamp and there's another other moments yeah. where the band members themselves are holding spotlights that they move around. I mean, all of those are uh, clever things that David Byrne has put together as part of the staging of the show. And I think, yeah, it's a, it's a, Good concert. I mean, I don't think either of us are saying that it isn't. No, and I like the set list a lot. So just to go into some more detail, right? He comes out to Psycho Killer and, you know, he says he's going to play a tape on a boombox, but it's from, you know, a soundtrack, a sound machine in the back. And it's just him and Psycho Killer with an acoustic guitar really flailing about and um, you're getting that. And then Tina Weymouth comes out to heaven and now it's the two of them and the set gets started to be constructed and Chris Franz is out and, you know, he's the drummer. He's coming out to thank you for sending me an angel. Finally, Jerry, Jerry Harrison 
uh, is out for a founded job. So now like you're kind of putting this all together and that's kind of cool the way it's constructed. The song that you mentioned, which is maybe my favorite song in the whole thing is uh, this must be the place. That's where he's dancing with the lamp. And um, that's an interesting one to watch this and American Utopia, because I think that's a highlight of both the pieces. Yeah, that was I, you know, again, as not really a fan of the music, I couldn't I don't recall like any of the the song particularly that that with the lamp. But that moment is cool and is fun. And yeah, one thing I also noticed, you know, you mentioned at the beginning, he says, I want to play a tape. And I that's basically all he ever says. And I, I noticed right. there's essentially no stage banter in this movie. There's. He's, I think he says thank you at one point and says a weird thing like anybody have any questions and then and then during the like uh, penultimate song I think he introduces all the band members but for the most part there isn't any stage banter and I don't know if that's something that is like a David Byrne thing and he doesn't do stage banter or if it's something that Jonathan Demi decided to cut out. Well, I can't answer that. I can tell you as a writer that is definitely something I've pointed out as a negative. And bands, when I see them live, I like how a band can connect um, to its audience, you know, as long as they're not going on half hour rants here, like every after every song. But um, so in American Utopia, it's all built as a story and the, the songs are connected through different uh, spoken elements between it. So the banter is as much I mean, is, you know, if the show's 65, 70%, the banter's 30%, but it's all a connective tissue. So I can't say that Byrne doesn't talk to the audience. I mean, um, so yeah, I don't have an answer to that, but, but you're right. Like it, it does give you the opinion of like, you're uh, a voyeur of this thing. Even if you're watching super close up next to it, it seems like maybe they don't know you're watching. Right. And well, I I haven't seen American Utopia, but it sounds like maybe that's less stage banter and more like scripted elements of the stage show. It's scripted into, um, yes, it is scripted, but, you know, and then he'll react to what, you know, how the audience reacts. Um, yes, you're right. But there's um, there's definitely more of a warmth to it, I'd say. Right. I mean, I do wonder also uh, if, you know, if if he says something like, thank you, Los Angeles, or it's great to be here in California, or, you know, some typical stage banter thing. I wonder if Demi would want to cut that out simply because you don't want to feel like you, it, it, this is meant to feel universal. It's not the LA performance. It's the performance for everyone. And so that's just speculation on my part. But I wonder if that's part of the reason is that it, 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 he wants it to feel sort of out of time and not like one performance on a particular day for particular people, but like a sort of uh, uber talking heads performance. I mean, in a way you're saying he wanted it to stop making sense. No, no, I'm not. Okay. I don't think he was saying that at all. No. Okay. You did a Never better mind. job with the other one. Yeah. <laughs> Leave me alone, guys. Um, so, Josh, uh, we don't know. And also, it could just be um, an artist evolves over the years. Maybe he's way more comfortable as an older gentleman talking to the audience than he was as a younger gentleman. We don't know. But that's okay. I mean, I think there's a number of answers to it. Um, did any song jump out at you like that really kind of hit you on this thing? Um, I mean, I think the stuff that I liked was the songs that I already knew that I liked. I mean, like I said, the, the big pop hits are the ones that I kind of enjoy the most. Um, I did like the performance of uh, Once in a Lifetime, 
which they do in a, a little kind of a different feel, I think. Is that, am I right about that? Kind of, you're, is that where they're doing the, like the kind of flashlights, almost the um, Bohemian Rhapsody effect to um, it? Well, I meant not visually, but, but musically, it seemed like it was a little, had a little more of a bass funky feel to it, but um, I, I could be wrong about that. Uh, because again, I don't listen to these songs a lot, but I like that performance uh, musically. I thought that was good, and it was it was kind of fun to see the the Tom Tom Club performance when David Byrne leaves and Tina Weymouth and Chris France, who were that was kind of their side project. They do that song, which is a very different sounding kind of I don't know funk uh, R and B disco almost feel, which is uh, the kind of music that they made. And that song, of course, uh, I recognize because it was sampled by Mariah Carey. Uh, sampled by ton, is, tons of people. Right, and that's probably the most famous one, though, because yeah. I, I remember that song. But Josh, I got to tell you, that uh, that's genius of love you're talking about right. there. I was so underwhelmed with that performance. I was so bummed out. I think that might have been my least favorite of the actual songs performed. I don't think they got nearly on stage as what they got in the recording of that song. And as opposed to, you know, you want to talk about one of the hits, from uh, Talking Heads, like I thought, uh, Take Me to the River, which here was done in a much more upbeat version, I thought really translated and popped more on stage. Oh, see, I guess that was a hit, but I don't think I've ever heard the like studio Talking Heads version of that song. I wasn't familiar with it. And that was a song that, that goes on really long. And I feel like that's the kind of thing where I, I personally... I don't really care for that in a live concert, even when bands will stretch songs out and I hate jamming, but I feel like if you're there, there's a certain energy to something like that, that you can feel. And that to me is something that really doesn't come across. And that song, and it's towards the end, it, I think that might be the second to last song. That was maybe the one moment musically where I was like, okay, guys, let's, let's move on. Um, so that was maybe my least favorite song. Well, there you, there you go. How about, how about you, Dave? Anything stand out for you? Like I was saying, I don't really know that much of their deeper catalog. So, I mean, for me, it was more just uh, hearing hits. And I actually really thought Burning Down the House was great, just, you know, as a performance. I like Burning Down the House on this, but I think it's even better in American Utopia, which is what I know it's like we're again, we, we kind of had this conversation in 16 Candles, although a little differently here. Uh, I'm comparing two different things, but I'm comparing two concert pieces of the same same artist in a way, although this is that's David Byrne and this is Talking Heads, you know. But I think that's fair. I can't imagine that David Byrne and Spike Lee weren't thinking about Stop Making Sense and sort of being under the shadow of it when they made American Utopia. Sure. And Jonathan Demi gets a special thanks. Obviously, we know he he died a few years back, but there is a special thanks for him in American Utopia. Yeah. So I don't know. Um, you know, interesting stuff like uh, what a day that was, was, uh, was from a, uh, it's called the Catherine wheel. It was a Twyleth Tharp dance piece, which is a uh, kind of a cool thing, you know? So there is, there's uh, a lot of nuggets here. And, um, and that one kind of had these shadows that you were talking about, the shadow interplay and I thought, and, uh, vocal harmonies and some good sweaty club shots. Um, the last thing, Josh, that I wanted to talk about was we got to talk about the suit, right? Of course. Well, I wanted to talk about the suit and clothing in general. Um, but what was the, the suit first? Of course, we're talking about David Burns, quote, big suit, which became a trademark for him and this this oversized suit that he comes out in. And it's funny that it became such this huge thing. I mean, huge uh, or important thing, because it's such a minor 
like thing. It's not like you think of Lady Gaga, for example, or something in these crazy elaborate costumes that she becomes known for. And this is just like a normal suit, but bigger. And it's yet got, it's yeah. something about it really works. Well, it's the 80s shoulder pad. It's uh, theatrical, you know, uh, Burn has said like no theater in Japan kind of uh, inspired it. But I also, I think one of the things that works about it is you see him in the suit and then you see him without the jacket, but still in the giant pants. And he's dancing in the giant pants in a regular size shirt. And that's that's a real uh, visual that sticks sticks in your head. Right, it does. And I feel like what I wanted to mention, and this maybe goes a bit to the potential tension between the band members that uh, supposedly, and again, this might have been on Wikipedia, so you never know, but supposedly David Byrne requested all the band members to wear these neutral colors. I mean, they're mostly all dressed in kind of grays in order not to take the visual focus away from other elements of the, the stage show as right, they're performing. The and this and that. Right, exactly. And the shadows, as we're, we've said, are, are super important to the way this movie looks. And yet Chris France, the drummer, comes out in this ridiculous, like, bright blue polo shirt. And just in general, between that and his haircut, he looks like a high school math teacher or something, which I really enjoyed. But I mean, you got to wonder if David Byrne says, please, guys, everybody, wear some beige or gray or something. And he's like, you know what? I'm going to wear this bright blue shirt. You got to uh, wonder about that. I don't I don't doubt it. I mean, in American Utopia, they're all dressed in that kind of uh, pale palette, you know, and it's all and they all match. So that way you don't you're not focused on it. You're focused on everything around it. So I don't doubt that that happened. Yeah. But I, I mean, I know certainly for me, like watching this movie, as soon as he came out on stage, my eye was drawn to that shirt. So <laughs> he accomplished it, I guess. You know, if he was trying to say, screw you, David Byrne, you're not the only one who deserves attention in this band, you know, he managed to do it. So uh, yeah, I, I think um, I think we've covered, I'm, I'm, I'll be curious to ask uh, Eric when we, we talk to him in a moment, about the difference between seeing this live and, and seeing it in the film. Because again, I felt like there were so many moments where being on stage with the performers gave you the full effect. And if you weren't there, like literally right in front of it, it wouldn't come across as well. Some of that lighting and shadow stuff that's very subtle. So uh, that, that to me was interesting. And again, as in, a, a, in terms of looking at what is going on here cinematically, I think the light and uh, the way that that they play with that is, is an important element. So I agree. I feel like this all should have worked for me, but for some reason it didn't. And, uh, I'm sure there are listeners out there who are like, that's cause you're an idiot who didn't get it. And, uh, fair point listeners. Yeah. Well, you know, we've had this experience. I'm sure we've been idiots who don't get it in, uh, various at various times, but you know, we're giving our the honest reactions. For example, <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, well, well, we'll table that one, but you know, we're, we're giving our honest reactions and we're, I think hopefully uh, articulating our own experiences and that's, uh, you know, that's all we can do. So um, do we want to rate this out of five uh, big suits? Five giant suits, Josh. <sighs> Sadly, Josh, I'm only going two and a half giant suits on this one. Wow. Even as much as you love the songs, that's, that's all you can. I love the music, but uh, I was just kind of not with it, my man. All right. Well, I'm going to give it three, which I'm surprised to be a higher rating than you because I am mostly indifferent to the music. But I thought even if it's not a great movie, I feel like it's clearly a great musical performance and it's documented effectively. So I don't see how I can give it 
less than three stars. No, I think that's fair. And and my question for myself is, can a concert film ever get to five stars for me? So maybe it's a two and a half out of a four. I don't know. I don't, you know, (laughs) that's that's something I have to figure out. I got to, again, Josh, going to be a lot of soul searching this week. That's good. That's (laughs) as long as we can lead to some soul searching, then this this show has accomplished its goal. So uh, Dave, how many big suits do you want to give this? I'm going with three and a half big suits. All right. So Good. Dave, the musician, got yeah. it. Um, I enjoyed it. Quite I'm glad. Much. I'm glad. I mean, I felt like I said, I almost feel guilty about just not connecting to it. But hey, that's that's what it I is. actually really agree with what Jason just said, by the way. Like, uh, I can't picture it, my favorite concert films uh, giving any of them five stars. Like, yeah, it's just hard to imagine. I agree. And I think this is, you know, like what I was saying is that for me, a concert, I never watch concert movies and you could have a concert film by my favorite artist of all time. And I'd be like, nah, I don't know. I'm not going to really bother. So, mm-hmm. but I love going to concerts. Yeah, we person. could, but I don't think Jessica Simpson ever made a concert film. Uh, you know, she's got some good songs, actually. Um, <laughs> I'm not joking. I have I've some, gone with I, Ashley Simpson. Though. I have some uh, Ashley Simpson, also some, some, some decent stuff. So uh, not that no I would more. see either of them in concert. Anyway, that's not that's not important. Well, we'll cut. We're going to come back and we're going to bring in our special guest. Jason, you want to tell us about who we're going to talk to? Yeah, we're talking to Eric Gladstone. Uh, He is kind of a a gadfly on the Las Vegas scene. Now, uh, recently won some awards for his new public relations company, The Feast of Friends. But he was a music journalist. He was a DJ. He was in a band and he's got an upcoming book with all of his interviews with uh, people like Henry Rollins and I think people from Sonic Youth from the 90s called uh, Anything But Nirvana, and it chronicles all his time on the rock scene. So we can ask him a little about that as well as his experience uh, at the Stop Making Sense tour where he saw them in Forest Hills, New York. Oh, all right. So we'll come back in a moment and talk to Eric Gladstone. All right, everybody, we are back here on Awesome Movie Year. We have a special guest. I was once asked by Brandon Powers, the owner of Evil Pie, if I am friends with Eric Gladstone. My answer was yes, but I also want to punch him in the face every day. He is a friend. He is a sparring partner. I almost had to defend his honor at an Iggy Pop concert that we saw together when a gentleman (laughs) tried to fight him. But uh, I don't recall the situation in quite the same way. (laughs) (laughs) Eric Gladstone, you wrote about music for many years. You, uh, I think, are a great DJ. I know you don't do it much anymore. And you were also in a band. And you have a book coming out about all of your interviews with uh, famed musicians of the late 80s and 90s called Anything But Nirvana. Congratulations on that. Uh, Hello, sir. Thank you. Hello, sir. And, and yes, I, I describe you either in my mind or to other people as like a like a younger brother with everything that means everything that entails. Exactly. Me and you can fight each other. But if anyone else <laughs> tries to jump in and like mess with you, then right. I got your back. You know that. Yeah, there so. you go. Yeah. So, uh, Eric, tell us about the book. Congratulations. I know you've been working on it for years. Thank you. And I appreciate it. Yeah, it's a. Uh, it's been a project for about five years that's just gotten interrupted by life, basically. And what it is, is it's a it's kind of a collection of my favorite stories slash most interesting stories, I hope, from 
when I was writing about uh, rock music mostly, alternative music mostly in the 90s and then into the aughts just a little bit. Uh, so it's like more or less like a 15-year run. Um, and I got to write about a lot of cool bands that have since become iconic. Uh, in many cases, uh, they were the first stories on some of these bands in, um, event on any level. Uh, in many cases, I got to, uh, be in places that, you know, ended up being kind of legendary. I was in the studio with Smashing Pumpkins when they made Siamese Dream. Um, and that's, that's kind of a huge story for lots of reasons. I was in the studio with Beck when he made Odelay. Um, uh, you know, I wrote a big piece about the Beastie Boys that led to my working for them for a minute. Um, stuff like that is in the book and, and then just some interviews that I'm really proud and happy with. And I think it's a nice kind of cross section of a lot of the bigger bands that came out of that era, except for Nirvana, which is kind of like, that's what, where the title comes from anything but Nirvana. Um, it's kind of basically sort of making fun of myself actually, as far as a writer, because you know, Nirvana was the story that everyone wanted. And for whatever reason, I never got it. And by the time I could have gotten it, everyone had written it. So I didn't want it. Um, which, by the way, very, very 90s attitude, you know? <laughs> yes, I am picturing you in a flannel shirt, but it's wrapped around your waist right now. So um, do you want to mention some of the uh, magazines that you were writing for back then? Uh, the most prominent magazines that I wrote for regularly were Rolling Stone and Spin and Alternative Press a lot. Um, I also wrote for MTV Online in its earliest years. Uh, I wrote for uh, SonicNet. I wrote for the online version of Wired Magazine. Um, I did a lot for Rhino.com uh, when they were doing original content, including... So I also, and this is where there's crossover, I also started writing about alternative and underground film when that started coming up and becoming cool in the mid nineties also. So I sort of phased from a, just a music writer to writing about film a lot and, and the crossover and in the crossover, I, I wrote about a ton of documentaries and a ton of movies about music that I championed really early on. Um, and, and, and in looking at my notes about this, we'll get to everything in a second, but a lot of them kind of come up as, as classics now. And they were just like, you know, something a kid would send me on a VCR and say, Hey, can you look at this and let me know if it's worth a review or whatever. So I'm really proud that I got to champion some stuff very early on. Paradise Lost is a good example of a non-music documentary that I championed really early Um and another one that comes up is still a good movie called The Target Shoots First, which is actually about record clubs. That comes up as a, as a something that holds up. And that was just, yeah, some crazy kid sent me this thing on VCR. I'll never forget it. VHS. Um, That's awesome. Yeah. So I got to write about a lot of stuff like that um, for a variety of, of magazines and, and early internet stuff. I, I did some very early music content for AOL as well, if any of you guys remember that. um i i'm hearing uh scratchy dial up right now um (laughs) uh no that's really cool and you and i uh often we talk about these movies i i'll call you before we're um you know kind of going to record just to get your thoughts because you were you know a lot of the time in the scene of when they came out and um and this one it was a kind of a perfect time to bring you on because of your background as a music writer, as a film writer and lover. And then also you told me you were at this Stop Making Sense tour 
Uh, tell us about yeah. that. So I got uh, my best friend in high school got tickets to see the Talking Heads uh, on this tour at the Forest Hills Tennis Center, which I think has since been replaced uh, where they where they used to do the U.S. Open. Um, I think they do it. Uh, they they rebuilt it, but at the time it was a uh, not a common place to see a concert. But but when it did, it was great, you know, because it's kind of like this. It was this square, you know, tennis uh, arena. Um, and yeah, we, we went to see talking heads there. Um, we really didn't necessarily have an idea of what the tour was going to look like. I can't remember what album that was off of. Uh, it was like their fourth album, I think. Um, speaking in tongues, speaking in tongues. So, so it was like, they were just starting to get popular. MTV was just starting to pay attention to them. And we didn't really have a sense of what the, what the, show was going to look like. I think we kind of knew Bernie Worrell was involved, which was felt like very left field because Bernie Worrell was this guy from P-Funk and, and a bunch of different kind of weird jazz funk things. And it was like, how does this fit in with the talking heads, you know, musically sure, but it was definitely like, it was a little unexpected. So went to see the show and the show was, I mean, I have to say, and I, and I later interviewed Jonathan Demi uh, for another movie that he did he did a another rock movie called storefront hitchcock about robin hitchcock and i got to interview him for that and i think we talked a little about this but i don't remember we definitely compared the two um but he really did a great job in this film in my opinion of uh of really documenting the show as it was and you you it's so choreographed and it's so and the, and the film is cut so well, I think, that you think, I think part of your brain goes, oh, this must have been kind of like staged or this must have been coordinated somehow to, to, for it to work on film, which is definitely true of other rock, quote unquote, documentaries. Um, but my recollection of the concert is pretty much like, that's it. They nailed it. Uh, that's really how well coordinated the concert was. Um, it was a really great show. And you see, I think, in retrospect, how influential that was. I mean, when you look at like the 1975 or Florence and the Machine or bands like that and how they do their staging now, it's completely influenced by that tour. Um, and and uh, it's really interesting to see that years afterwards. Um, you know, I don't, yeah, I just, it's, it's incredible how I think influential that tour and the staging was. No one was really yeah. good. Like that. Was this your first time seeing the Talking Heads? I think it's the only time I saw them. Actually, once I saw that show, I was like, "Well, I'm never gonna—they're never gonna top that." You know, I mean, that's how there's a, there's a few bands like that in my life where I've just like I saw them and it was so good. I'm less like I'm not going again because like it's gonna ruin that memory. Um, and that's probably one of them. And Eric, did you go see the movie then when it first came out? I think I I'm pretty sure I saw it when it came out. Although it's possible that it. I took a while because I probably thought, you know, I used, I used to have a bit of a snotty attitude in the eighties. Um, I, I loosened up a little bit in the nineties, but in the eighties, I was kind of like, I saw it. I saw the tour. Why do I need to go see the movie of what I already saw? Um, so I'm not sure that I saw it straight out, but, it, but I probably did. So <laughs> let me uh, ask you two questions, Eric. Do you, I mean, look, we're talking about what 84. So what, 30 years yeah. ago, 35 years ago now. Do you yeah, have any highlights etched in your head from this? Do you remember anything that really stood out to you beyond the staging? 
Well, the suit thing and what he did with it was awesome. Uh, the way that they incorporated the rhythms of the music into the staging and the pacing uh, was just really incredible. Um, I mean, they did take, I do recall that they did take breathers, you know, in between songs, but it still felt like it was just like it went at you. I remember the trick with the lamps, uh, that that's etched in my memory really well. And the fact that Bernie was featured so prominently and, and such a member spot, a spotlight and yet a member of the band was really cool. It just, it was just, you really saw because it because again this was in the era before there were jumbotron screens at concerts which is hard i think probably for people in the modern era to even imagine it's like and i when i go to concerts now i really try not to look at the jumbotron the whole time which is hard um because it obviously brings you that much closer but you want to look at the actual people doing the actual stuff well back then that's that's all you could look at you know and hopefully you were close enough to see what was going on we actually were we had really kind of perfect seats um but um, I, I do recall the pacing of the show was really good and the visual of the show was really good. And it was so visually ahead of so much. People would just kind of have a static background. If it, at, at best, concerts would have one big banner behind them and it wasn't going to change, obviously. Now you've got incredible visuals that you can do. Um, so the cleanness and the, 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 the visual theatrical approach to what they were doing and yet, it was just enough that it served the music and didn't didn't try and distract you from it, if that makes sense. You, Eric, you and I talked before. You said there was about 5,000 at venues like this. They were playing about 5,000 seats. Sounds about right, yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, well, what I wonder is that, I mean, and you say that you had pretty good seats, but to me watching the movie, it seemed like there was so much detail that the movie captures by being up close and on stage with the performers. Yeah. That if you were even a little far back in the audience, you wouldn't notice having been there in person and then seeing the movie, were there things that you saw in the movie that you missed when you were there in person? Uh, I'm sure. And I haven't looked at the movie recently, so I'd have to, I, there's nothing in particular that I can point out, but yeah, of course, I'm sure there's a few things, but they were not, I think and the point I'm making about the movie is they weren't making, they weren't doing the staging to make the movie. So even though the movie probably picked up things that not a lot of people saw, it wasn't because they were doing things that only the cameras could see, if that makes sense. They were definitely performing for the audience. So their their moves were very big and bold and theatrical, or at least as much as they wanted it to be. Tina's a really active bass player, for example. Uh, you know, and and Byrne was doing his thing, you know, and that's that's he I think he made that suit because it would exaggerate his movements, you know, to to a huge audience. Um and it and it that's exactly what it did, you know. And um, let me ask you a question because you brought up Bernie Worrell a few times and he's so spotlighted on this. And yeah. one of the critiques that I had in, um, is that I don't see any interplay between Bern and the other band members like, you know, Franz Harrison or, or Tina, because we know they have always had friction and now they basically don't speak. Did did you right. notice that or did we miss something there? Were they were they? I mean, they clearly enjoyed performing, but did they enjoy each other? You know, uh, my recollection of the time was that they were not a super like high five each other band ever, uh, with or without him. Uh, they kind of went on stage and they played the music and they, they interacted through the music. They weren't like the type of, you know, the, 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 um, the guitarist and the, uh, 
bassist leaning over and telling jokes to each other, you know, or like going back to back or all that spinal taps type stuff. I don't think they ever did any stuff like that. And in fact, I seem to remember, you know, Chris, Chris and Tina being married. It's like you never got any vibe of that at all on stage. It's not like they threw each other kisses or anything. You know what I mean? Like you didn't get any of that on stage from them. They just kind of played their music. They were, they, David did most of the interaction with the audience and they just kind of did their thing. So I don't think that was specific to Bernie's interaction with them. Although having seen Bernie with uh, P-Funk also later on, uh, he, Bernie just kind of does this thing and it's, it's, Bernie's a little bit as a musician. He was a, he was a little bit in his own vibe, and it's like I hear you, but I'm doing my thing, and you can you can either ride my train or not. But I'm I'm going where I want to go. That's kind of how Bernie was as a musician. So I think they they just kind of made it work. Does that make sense? Yeah, Eric, thank you for your insights and for joining us. Um, what what do you want? We talked about your book, but uh, what else yeah. do you want to plug? Where can people find your work? Oh, well, so, I mean, my, my book is, you know, a throwback to a previous career. Uh, now I'm, now I represent restaurants, um, uh, for marketing and social media and PR. Uh, so I'm in a totally different world. If, if you care, you can go to the feast of friends.com. That's, that's my company now. Um, but, uh, yeah, I just appreciate you being on. It's a great podcast. Uh, it's a lot of fun it, seeing you guys go through a lot of the films and a lot of the eras when I was writing about film and studying film. Um, I still want to see you guys go back and do some stuff on silent film because I'm really into that world. Um, we'll, we'll get there. <laughs> uh, hey, Eric, uh, thanks again. And uh, people can find your book coming out on Amazon. Is that correct? It is, it is going to be uh, available for pre-sale on Amazon within the next few weeks, hoping, hoping to have it available by Christmas. Uh, uh, fingers crossed, but uh, yeah, we're very close, and uh, it'll definitely be available on presale. Uh, anything but Nirvana. Thanks for the plug, guys. Appreciate you. You got it, and we look forward to seeing you in a giant suit coming up soon. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1984. We've been talking about our documentary pick, the Talking Heads concert film, Stop Making Sense. And we just got some insights from Eric Gladstone, who was there in person, which of course we were not, and maybe has a different, if not better, appreciation of this whole thing, having seen it from that perspective. I think one thing, Josh, that he did say, and it leads in perfectly to this legacy segment, is how influential this has been on staging and the look of live shows and also the look of a lot of other concert pieces. Yeah, I think so. Uh, I mean, it's maybe one of the reasons that it doesn't impress us as much now is because we're used to concert films and we're used to these kind of elaborate stagings of, of concert tours and of concert performances where the artists are thinking about where the, the artistry is not just in the music, but is also in the presentation of the music and the fact that David Byrne put so much thought and so much effort into how this whole concert is being presented. I mean, that's something that I think you see from many, many, many artists now, and maybe you didn't see as much back then. So it doesn't strike us as quite as revolutionary. Right. And David Byrne is having a moment right now 
Uh, America has fallen back in love with him if they ever fell out of love with him. Uh, American Utopia was a huge live touring show and now, you know, was a huge hit on Broadway before the pandemic hit. And uh, highly recommend it. Spike Lee is also, he directed it, takes a lot of visual risks as he does a lot lately in his films. Um, it's a really good piece. Some of the same songs like This Must Be The Place, Burning Down The House, Once In A Lifetime, but also some newer songs and a really powerful cover of uh, Janelle Monet's song in there. So um, it's uh, it's worth checking out, American Utopia. Yeah, I have not uh, seen that, but it certainly is one of the more acclaimed films of the year. And I think, again, much like Stop Making Sense was something that film fans and film critics embraced, not just music fans or not just people who are into the talking heads. I think that seems to have become the case for American Utopia as well. And it's interesting to me that on the one hand, there's hundreds of concert films uh, released all the time now. I mean, it's it, any artist goes on tour and they make a, a quote movie of it or some sort of home video document that you can, that fans can purchase or can stream so that they can watch it. But very few of these are considered sort of art or cinema on their own, the way that Stop Making Sense was. And I was trying to think of which, which concert films like that sort of fall into that category recently. And the only thing that came to mind was the Beyonce concert film Homecoming, which I haven't seen, but I got a lot of really, really great reviews from film critics. And I don't know, Jason, if you can think of any others like that. No, you make a good point because like we said, this is not a, this is not a music documentary, you know, uh, like kind of like uh, chronicling the history of a band and the relationships. And it's not an album documentary, like kind of chronicling the inspiration and then playing it. You're talking about a very straightforward performance of a concert. I, I, you know, obviously I love Springsteen ones. That's a personal choice. But I think that him and Tom Zimney have such a working relationship that they understand the language of how he wants it to be shot. But um, recently, nothing has jumped out. I, I I know I mentioned the last waltz. To me, that's the height of someone being able to capture the piece, the and the performance, and uh, spotlight each member uh, cinematically. But again, he does these little interviews in between that are like palate cleansers, so it kind of leads you from segment to segment. So. It's really tough genre to really crack, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think it's tough to crack in the sense that it's tough to make something that people will look at as a film, as an achievement right. in film, right. as opposed to just, um, here's a concert that happened and that this is being made for fans of this particular artist. I think technologically, it's easier than ever to do something like that. But yeah. it's, it's harder to create something um, that makes that wider impact as a piece well, of film. Even in a more recent sense, the Aretha Franklin one, right? That's That was a big, that did make an impact, but that's actually a concert film from 73 or something like that, right? So Right, uh, that, um, amaz really Amazing Grace. Yeah. There was a pretty interesting one last year uh, from Depeche Mode, Spirits in the Forest, which uh, I, I didn't love necessarily, but it did take a unique approach in that the the main story was being told by four fans and it was interviews with these four specific fans that they followed through their their life and how Depeche Mode has touched their life and you really only get little bits and pieces of concert footage throughout which really kind of takes like the exact opposite approach in a way yeah right that's not really a concert doc then that's the opposite isn't it yeah but I mean that's kind of what it was sold as though that's cool 
So. And I mean, and I think that that points to like the way that you make something like this into sort of a, a quote, a movie that people view that way is to have other stuff in it. Um, right. I, I mean, there was a movie, mm-hmm. uh, Metallica made a movie a few years ago that I actually haven't seen, even though I'm a big Metallica fan, because like I said, I tend not to go to concert films, but a movie called Through the Never, which was a combination of a Metallica concert performance. And then it had like a narrative element where Dane DeHaan, the actor is in it and he plays like a Metallica roadie and he has to go on some kind of mission. And again, they add this extra stuff in there in order to get it to be kind of thought of as, as quote, a movie that was released in a regular theatrical release um, and not just as a one-time event. And it didn't, like, I think it was a flop. I don't think anybody went to see it as a movie. Um, and again, as a Metallica fan, I haven't even seen it, but I think you, it, it maybe is necessary to do something like that in order to, to sell this as more than just like a home video souvenir. Yeah. And one other dimension, and it's one I haven't seen, but I should watch cause I like the group too, is what was the Beastie Boys one? The, uh, we shot this shit that, uh, they had their fans shoot everything and then they just kind of put it together as like, it's, I'm not going to say a, a found footage movie, but like a chronicling from fans point of view of the show. Right. Right, right. Um, I think it's called Awesome. I fucking shot that. It has a different swear word in the title than one that you used. I was close. Um, I was close. Yes, you were. Um, and Jonathan Demi himself, I mean, this movie was so successful that he had kind of a side career. I mean, he was a very successful narrative film director, yeah. but he had this this ongoing career as a documentary filmmaker, including making a number of concert documentaries. For artists, including uh, Robin Hitchcock, which that that film that that Eric Gladstone mentioned, uh, Storefront Hitchcock, yeah, Storefront. he made a couple movies with Neil Young. And actually, the final feature film that he directed before he passed away was a Justin Timberlake concert documentary that's on Netflix that I, I want to say did get some notice as sort of a piece of cinema, maybe not to the level of that Beyonce movie, but I did see it kind of covered and reviewed beyond just uh, the music press. So that was something that, that Jonathan Demi held on to throughout his career. Yeah, well, Demi made 15 documentaries overall and produced more. Uh, so that is interesting. Obviously, we all know the height of his success was Silence of the Lambs, you know, which just won everything. Um, but, you know, Josh, uh, going back to American Utopia, I think those type of shows sometimes get more credit as, you know, they kind of break through as musical and filmatic pieces, uh, cinematic pieces, because I'm thinking of Springsteen on Broadway, which also got that. And even Hamilton in a way this year, which is different, kind of broke through. Yeah, I was thinking of Hamilton as I was watching this and the idea of like what makes this a big piece of cinema, because Hamilton, the the sort of quote movie of Hamilton that you can watch on Disney Plus uh, was touted as this huge event, was initially intended to be a big theatrical release, and Disney paid like $75 million for the rights to it. And you have to wonder, like, is that just because Hamilton as a stage show was such a sensation, or is there something there as a movie in that in that uh, piece? And I don't know. I mean, having watched it, and, and Jason, I think you watched it too, even if, you, like, regardless of what you think of Hamilton as a as a stage production, I don't really think there's anything in that as a movie that it's it's just a document of the stage production. I think it's documented well as the thing. It's such a brilliant show. And this one kind of uh, utilizes every every shot is kind of thought out, you know, in the same way that we're talking about here, where it's um, 
there are reasons for each shot and they're showing you uh, swooping angles or close-ups based on whatever's going on. I loved Hamilton. Yeah. I mean, again, I'm not saying I, I, I thought it was fine, but regardless of the quality of the stage play, I felt like there were very few moments in there where I could think about like in Stop Making Sense, you know, what is the director choosing to do here from a cinematic standpoint where you're talking about like close-ups or moving the camera in certain ways. And Hamilton, that is something where they did shoot parts of it without the audience, that they went back and shot certain numbers on the stage uh, without the audience there so that they could get certain angles. But I don't know. I mean, we don't need to spend this much time on Hamilton. I just, that is kind of the biggest, that was such a big deal that it came out. And I didn't really understand the, the the hype about it sort of as a movie. So Josh, let's uh, let's talk a little about the other talking heads because Chris Franz uh, right now has a book out, uh, Remain in Love, which is about his life with Tina Weymouth and their kind of work together in the talking heads and Tom Tom Club. Uh, Jerry Harrison went on to produce a lot of bands, including no doubt Kenny Wayne Shepherd. General Public, Violent Femmes, and, you know, Tina Weymouth, uh, kind of a legend there. So that's what those three are up to. But David Byrne, really, really in the spotlight now. Right. I mean, he's clearly the one who went on to have the most successful career, which is not surprising as, you know, as the front man for that. And, I, you know, I'm not, as, as I've said multiple times, I'm not necessarily a fan, but I think it's interesting that these, these the Talking Heads have to be one of the few bands that were huge you know, in the 80s and in the early 90s that broke up and then have just stayed broken up. They performed together when they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but they've never done a reunion tour. They've never done a reunion album. They've they've resisted and they've kind of held out on all that bad blood between them for, uh, you know, the last 30 years or whatever. So I don't know if that is that admirable or is it sad? I think they would get back together if David Byrne wanted to get back together with them. But his career has been so varied. He's got an Oscar, you know, for yeah. his work uh, on the soundtrack of The Last Emperor. And he's done everything from classical pieces to kind of uh, this interesting uh, amalgamation of music and a color guard uh, situation, uh, which is called Contemporary Color with 10 Musical Acts and 10 Color Guards uh, groups. Um, and Josh, you... Uh, inform me of uh, True Stories, which I watched the David oh. Byrne directed film from, I think, 1986. Um, yes. And features nine or ten, I think nine new uh, Talking Head songs and kind of led into that. And uh, it's, I really liked it. I really, really liked it. It's so strange and it's all about this little town uh, in Texas and John Goodman is one of the stars of it and just kind of the 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 townsfolk and David Byrne narrates it and there's some really weird uh humor in there. Stephen Tobolowski is one of the um co-writers, Ned Ryerson, of course, from uh Groundhog Day. It's really fun. It's so weird. I could see how people hate it, but I really liked it. Yeah, I haven't seen it. I'm glad you watched it though, because uh it did seem like something that is a clear sort of progression from this. And and one of the reasons that that movie, and as you kind of allude to it, was a big flop. Um, but one of the reasons that it was made is something that has come up a, a lot on our some recent episodes that we've had, which is that Stop Making Sense was such a huge success that David Byrne was able to kind of get a blank check to say, hey, I'm, you know, look at what I've just done here that people love. I want to do this weird project. And even though he had never directed a film before and has never directed a film since, 
you know, he was given the freedom to do what he wanted with that movie. Well, so, well he um, should direct a movie because it's beautiful. Like the colors and like the kind of dance sequences. And there's some really memorable stuff like the fashion show. And uh, it's awesome. Like it's a really good movie. I, I, I recommend it. Yeah, I'll have to check it out. It's super weird. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I, I like that. I'm, I'm OK yeah. with that. I did want to circle back just briefly uh, to Jonathan Demi because in addition to making narrative films and making concert documentaries, he in a, in a couple of instances, he kind of integrated that. I love Rachel Getting Married, for example, uh, which takes place at a wedding. And there's a lot of musical performance from the, the wedding band where he just lets that stuff play out. And then the last narrative film that he directed, Ricky and the Flash with Meryl Streep, where she's kind of this... Um, aging rock star, which I was not a fan of, but has built kind of a cult following. And that is another one where he really draws on his experience making concert films. So I just think it's interesting that he's able to put those two things together. That is interesting. Um, I had two other things I really wanted to bring up uh, quickly. One is, uh, you know, like you said, this was a huge move made 5.1 million off of a 1.2 million budget that the Talking Heads raised. And one of the producers of it was Gary Goatsman, who we have discussed in That Thing You Do. Uh, he was Tom Hanks' producing partner, and he's produced a lot of musical acts like Staple Singer and Natalie Cole. He worked with Demi on Silence of the Lambs in Philadelphia. And of course, like we said, he's Tom Hanks' producing partner. So he's done everything from Polar Express to My Big Fat Greek Wedding to Greyhound and News of the World coming out now, Master of Air. And um, the last thing, Josh, I wanted to talk about is uh, David Byrne's renaissance as a comedy player, where he has been in, you know, he and John Mulaney seem to uh, collaborate a lot. He's really funny in the sack lunch bunch where he sings uh, Pay Attention with a child performer named Lexi Perkle. And he also was in a sketch on SNL with um, with uh, Mulaney. And he also did a J David Byrne's giant suit emporium as a fake ad on uh, the late show with Stephen Colbert. So those are some, some interesting pieces there. Uh, and of course, speaking of John Mulaney, he is one of the collaborators on documentary now, which is a great series that, that parodies documentaries, the uh, Fred Armisen and Seth Meyers and Bill Hader, uh, who are the other people behind that show. And they have an episode that parodies stop making sense and 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 as is the case, I think with every episode of that show, it's a parody, but it's also clearly a very affectionate tribute. So I would recommend every episode of that show, really. But um, they also did bring in "Stop Making Sense," and I'm sure David Byrne appreciated it. Yeah, that one's called "Final Transmission." There you go. So that is "Stop Making Sense," and that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. You can follow us on social media. Yes, you can. We are at awesomemovieyear.com, Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram, Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. I'm Jason Harris Comedy on Facebook and Instagram. Jay Harris Comedy on Twitter. Go for Jason.com. Not good at anything, including being a website. I am at joshbellhateseverything.com, which may have some content on it soon. We'll see. Uh, at Josh Bell Hates Everything on Facebook and at Signal Bleed on Twitter. And you can check out our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. You can check us out wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on social media at PiecingPod. And don't forget about our Patreon, produced by David Rosen, where you'll find bonus content from 
awesome movie year, piecing it together from my music career. I got a bunch of bonus music coming out soon on there, as well as album length commentaries. So check that out as well. Yeah, sign up, please. Um, and thanks again to our guest, Eric Gladstone, his book, what is it called, Jason? Anything but anything but Nirvana. There you go. Will be available on Amazon very soon. So, Jason, what is in our next episode? Well, Josh, I am nothing if not a gentleman, and as a gentleman, I shall defer to you because it's your pick of the season. <laughs> it is my pick, and it's uh, maybe the most esoteric pick I've given yet on Awesome Movie Year. It is Tom Eberhardt's cult sci-fi teen comedy thing, Night of the Comet. So I'm uh, apprehensive, but excited to talk about that. Tune in next time for Night of the Comet. And thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.